0: Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin,
1: And I'm Will Lentz.
0: And we're your hosts. And today, we are thrilled to have Doug here to talk all about LA Rope Dojo uh, and Shibari. Um... Yeah. And, and before we get to that, which is so exciting, um, I took a class with my partner, uh, gosh, I don't know, in January, I think. Time is irrelevant at some point. And, um... And it was so much fun and I've been really interested in Shibari for quite a while. But uh, we wanted to talk about censorship on the internet because we've encountered it in in multiple aspects in the last week or so, um, which I think is interesting and, you know, lends itself to talking about these these concepts that are, you know, I would say more esoteric or people just don't know as much about, like Shibari. Um and that the goal of this podcast is to really, you know, take things out of out of behind the closed door um, and open the door so that we can openly talk about them.
1: Yeah, esoteric is a good word for that. Um, I like it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we, we had, I think there's kind of two things that we wanted to bring up. The first is, uh, something that we ourselves experienced, which was, um, we, we have a YouTube channel as we've mentioned, if you guys have, uh, if yes, you guys have uh, not heard subscribe. that yet, we do. Um, yeah. And so we posted our, um, interview last week. Uh, with ask a sub, and that word sub got flagged, um, and so we posted it, had it scheduled, and then I got an email in the morning that was like, "Your video has been deleted from YouTube uh, for done, violating." Done, done. <laughs> I know uh, for violating these rules, and I was like, "Oh no," because um, I always make sure, like you know, we're it's a video not for kids because the topic is not, and like you know, I try to go through all the, the proper channels, and I'm just never really exactly sure. Um, ends up they flagged it for the word sub because. Um, they just have an auto read for that kind of stuff Look of, of people looking for ways to get more subscribers to their YouTube channel. Like sub for sub apparently is like a, a video kind of thing. Like if you subscribe to ours, we'll subscribe to you. And so mm-hmm. it gets flagged as a scam. And so I just, you know, respond, I appealed it and I was like, uh, just so you know, sub in this instance means submissive. It does not mean subscription. And, uh, and then like within the day they were like, Oh, you're all good. Our bad. Uh, <laughs> it's like, cool. Thank you. Um, so it wasn't the most um you know laborious uh attempt to get it back and 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 we were able to get it back and so that's great um but it does kind of show as we were kind of talking earlier like it can flag certain things that may not be the interpretation of of, of what we meant so um so I i found that to be interesting
0: yeah, um, I think it's interesting too that when you said submissive, they were like, "Okay,
1: <laughs> totally,
2: I, go know. for it."
0: Um, because cool. on the on the flip side of that, on both Facebook and Instagram, there have been so many censorship issues with sex workers and sex educators even talking about sex, using the word "sex," um, and so the the group that I love that I've had so many guests from this group on the podcast sex positive universe for uh, female identifying people women with an x um it's just like it, we they got shut down and it got reinstated but you know just this policing of bodies and this policing of content with blunt solutions is it uh, it's it—it it is so i just think it's horrible <laughs> because it it really like it prevents us from seeing a variety of different content and um you know actually educated perspectives and people talking openly and honestly about pleasure and sex and sexuality um, and relegates everything into this like negative censored category where we we shouldn't be able to talk about it we shouldn't be able to see it and and that just feels like a really really big bummer and 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 a huge impact on my life like that that group has been incredibly influential and and hugely impactful in like my own journey
1: yeah and it's and it's one of those things too where it's like it, it is categorizing that type of conversation with uh, with the other things that might get censored, which we've seen a lot of stuff being censored around hate speech and things like that. And those are two very different things. There's one that I think people should be embracing um, yeah. and, and learning about. And, and if it's not your thing, that's okay, too. But then there's the other that's like uh, tearing at the fabrics of our society. And that's the kind of thing that should be policed more. So um, it's just interesting, I think, to see and, and saddening in a way to see um, the, the approach that uh, large tech companies take towards something like that. But I'm glad to hear that it was reinstated. Um, that is definitely a positive.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was listening to an episode of Reply All, and they were talking about Twitter, like when Trump got kicked off Twitter, mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, a lot of us took a, a breath of relief. But at the same time, that, like, these platforms have such a monopoly that there is no other place to go realistically right. at this point. And so, if you want to go somewhere, you have to create your own thing. And, and you know, how that is so involved and stuff and so um i i do think that that is a really valid point too of like there just needs to be more more in the marketplace and zuckerberg just can't own everything
1: yeah he's gonna try but I, (laughs) i i agree
0: yeah Um, well, uh, without further ado, we're so excited to bring you this episode. Um, if you don't know what Shibari is, it's a type of Japanese rope tying. Um, Doug studied with a grandmaster in Japan. I got to take a class with him. He does privates and group lessons when COVID is no longer a threat or wasn't a threat. (laughs) Um, and it's just amazing. And I, I think the history and just, um, this art form is so unbelievably cool. So please, enjoy! Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited. Today we have Doug from L.A. Rope to talk all things shabari. Um, I'm obsessed with shabari, and so I can't wait to dig into it. But I'd love to hear um, just a little bit about your background. And if you just want to introduce yourself, Doug, because I know you have a lot of accolades I'd love to hear about.
2: Great, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So um, I've been doing... Um, Japanese erotic rope bondage since about 2006. Um, I got my start actually during a business trip to Japan and I had had some interest in it just from seeing things online prior to that from, from a long way back and uh, was lucky enough to find somebody to give me my first lesson in Tokyo. And then I studied a bit in LA when I came home and then I was very lucky to um, find a teacher in Japan uh, whose name was Yukimura Haruki uh, who, for about six and a half years, was was my teacher. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away in two thousand sixteen. Um, but I got to study with him, and uh, I got to become part of his school in Japan. And I, I got a Japanese name from him, and everything it was it was really exciting. Um, and eventually, he uh, he gave me a teaching certificate, um, which um, I thought was quite an honor. Until one of my senpai pulled me aside and explained to me. Um, not really so much of an honor. He just told you that when you go home, you're opening up a dojo. So (laughs) that's what I did. And uh, for the past, uh, I guess about five and a half years, um, I've been running uh, LA Rope, which is uh, a teaching facility in Koreatown and uh, giving both group lessons before COVID um, and then private lessons as well. I've also been really active in promoting um, Shibari and Kimbaku in the West. I run a um, online site called Kimbaku Today, which is um, just a lot of articles and discussion um, about the influence of Japanese rope uh, on the West. And then I also run two video sites, one called Japanesebound.com and the other ropeflix.com, which um, have uh, Japanese Kimbaku videos either for download or for streaming. So if people are interested, they can check those out.
0: Yeah, amazing. We can put links to those as well. And so can you just clarify? I, w- I want to get deeper into, into all of those goodies, but um, what is kinbaku versus shimbari, or are they the same thing? Uh,
2: they're the same thing. They're two different words for the same thing. Okay. Um, and Got one it. of the things that's interesting in the West is the only people, only thing that people like more than tying is arguing about tying. Um, <laughs> okay. And so for, for Japanese words, there's, Usually two pronunciations for, for kanji. One is the basically the Chinese pronunciation, and the other is the Japanese pronunciation. So if you look at the kanji for kimbaku and shibari, they both have baku as the main kanji. Um, so mm-hmm. when you add the baku, when you add the uh, hiragana ri to it, it becomes shibari. Um, and when you put kin in front of it, it becomes kimbaku, which means essentially tight binding. Um, but kimbaku is considered more of kind of a formal word that you might use like in the title of a book. Um, and shibari is something you probably say more in, in conversation. So you never ask somebody to do kimbaku, you'd ask them to do shibari. Um, but you might have okay. a class in kimbaku in which you did shibari. So people like to argue about whether it. it's emotion or what it has to do with tying and whether it's formal or not and and all those things. Um, most of the people in Japan um, don't really make much of a distinction. Um, it's a bit like us arguing about whether someone was tied up or whether they were bound.
0: Got it, yeah. okay. That makes sense. And so then for you personally, like what drew you to rope? Like, was this something that you were interested in as a kid? Um, did you find it later in life? Like what was the fascination with rope?
2: Yeah. It, it's something I found really early on because, um, when I was a kid, I was, uh, on computer networks really early, well before there was an internet, um, back when they used to do these things called bullet board systems. And, um, when I was 12 or 13, I came across these pictures um, of Japanese women tied up. And it would take like 35 minutes to download one picture. And it was green and white dots on the TV <laughs> screen. And I had to save it on cassette tapes and, and all this stuff. But it, it blew my mind. I just loved it so much. Um, and that's why when I went to Japan, I, I had to figure out like how I could get, get access to that. And uh, one of the things fascinating is I came to realize that most of the pictures that I was seeing um, when I was a kid, we uh, were taken by a famous Japanese photographer uh, named uh, Sugira Norio, uh, who is well known as one of the top Japanese erotic photographers. Um, and uh, I actually got to meet him and study with him and get to know him fairly well um, in, in my trips to Japan. So that was one of those moments when, you know, everything kind of came full circle for me, which is really fascinating.
0: Yeah, isn't that funny? The world is so kismet. Uh, There's always like such amazing, uh, just bringing together of of manifesting what what you're into, um, and so I- I'm curious then of like was this something that was like talked about in, in your household or even growing up? Like was, was sexuality and, and these different kind of expressions, something that was, uh, you know, talked about in your family or was this more taboo? Um, like, was this like a thing that you were doing on your own or were there uh, like people to talk about it with?
2: No, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, the one conversation that I had with my mom about it, um, the sum total of the conversation i think could be summarized by her throwing the bible at me and telling me i was going to hell so uh
0: oh wow okay so slightly restrictive <laughs> <Sure>.
2: environment um <laughs> and uh yeah very religious mother uh not religious father at all but um yeah sex was a very taboo topic and um you know something that had a lot of shame attached to it and the generation that i grew up in there was no internet As I mentioned, I was on bulletin board systems, that was my access to it, but but I think people of my generation oftentimes feel um, very isolated and alone with those kind of feelings because it's something you're drawn to, but um, there's no place to go that's telling you it's healthy, that it's appropriate, or that it's even shared. So um, Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid going to a local pharmacy where they had a magazine section. And there used to be these um, old classic detective magazines that always had women tied up on the covers, right? And uh, of course, I was, you know, always by those and was really drawn to those. Um, Yeah, but I didn't think anybody else thought that it was, you know, interesting for the reasons that I did. I thought, oh, these people are really into true crime stuff, but I'm just buying it because I like to see the pretty girls tied up, right? Now I come to realize that there's a whole generation of men like me who are influenced in exactly that way. Um, And and that's why everybody was buying those magazines. (laughs)
0: right it's all it's so interesting i mean the way that we treat um sex and sexuality within this country and globally but particularly within this country is like it it is really isolating like it it does make you feel like somehow you're alone and you're the only one having these thoughts which is like insane right. yeah yeah um and so i'm curious then when you went to japan like was it easy to find was it easy to find Shibari? Was it easy to find, you know, a rope class or, or to find these resources? Or is it more, is it more hidden there?
2: Um, it's, it's a bit of both. So I, I was really lucky because I was able to go with somebody who had some, some access, who had written a book and the book was being translated into Japanese. So we got oh, to meet cool. people. Um, but really early on, there were very few people going to Japan um, and having the Japanese come to America was unheard of. So um, I think mm. that uh, at the time we brought Yukimura over, I think it was 2010, 2011, I think he was the first Japanese sort of master to come and teach in America. Um, and then we did the same oh, thing cool. with um, a guy named Akira Naka a couple years later and that was the first time he had come to America. And now it's very routine, they come all the time. Um, but it was really an opening up of, of that connection so uh i think we were met with a fair degree of enthusiasm on one hand and skepticism on the other because they didn't really know uh what to to make of these westerners who are interested in this thing that was very japanese and and very guarded um and in japan uh if you know where to look and if you know the right people it's everywhere but if you don't um you'll never really be able to see it. You can walk past these clubs that have rope events going on every night in Tokyo, um, walk past the door every day for most of your life and have no idea what's happening. So, um, it Got definitely it. is pr- part of an underground world there. Um, everyone's kind of aware of it, but in order to seek it out, you, you have to make some connections.
0: And is it legal there? Is there legalization around these types of clubs, etc., or is it illegal?
2: Um, actually, doing the rope part of it is, is legal, um, and there are plenty of rope bars. Um, where it starts to get sketchy is when you start to involve nudity or sex. So there's claro. there's different kind of clubs in Japan. One one kind of, of club is called a happening bar, um, which are, are pretty close to swinger clubs. Um, so there is sex happening, and they're very underground. Um, they're, uh, as I understand it, fairly well protected by uh, the yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia. So they're kind of allowed to operate under the surface, um, but they occasionally get busted and raided and shut down, which happens from time to time. So um, there are clubs like places like Ubu, um, which is just a rope bar, and. Um, there's no nudity or very limited nudity, and, um, people just go there to tie. So they would be considered, I think, perfectly legitimate and fine. Um, Got it. but yeah, it's once you start mingling the, the sex in where things get complicated.
0: Got it. And then, so for you, as you like met yukimuro who is the, was your grandmaster who you trained with. Yeah. Right. Um, so what was that journey like and what, what, what did you find with your exploration of rope? Like, you know, I've I've dabbled with with Shibari now a little bit yep. with LA rope, and then, um, you know, in other aspects, and and have been a part of the BDSM and BDSM and King community. Um, and and for me, it. It's like a it's a really helpful expression of like boundaries and getting to um just even know myself and partners and like it's a it it titillates my brain in a way that I find really exciting. And so I'm curious for you, um, what is that experience like and and how does rope enhance or um you know, like what does rope do for you as you started to explore and as you continue to
2: explore? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because there's there are many different ways that rope gets practiced in Japan and across the world, and for Yukimura mm-hmm. the activity was at its core erotic, um, and mm-hmm. it was very much of an erotic energy exchange between you and the person that you're tying. Um, and the other thing he was very interested in was um, playing with the erotic dimension of shame or humiliation. So what mm-hmm. what the Japanese would call hazakashi which um, is the kind of embarrassment that comes with a sort of exposure of making things public. So um, okay. the more exposed you can make your partner feel, the more embarrassed they become, the more excited they would become. Um, and in Japan, there's a real taboo about the open expression of sexuality. What you do in private mm-hmm. is your own business, but having that exposed somehow is is very shameful and very embarrassing, but also very erotic right? Because you're breaking a taboo. Where sure. in America, it's, it's um, we're very much of a guilt-based culture. They're very much of a shame-based culture. So um, there's real distinctions in the psychology. But the main thing that Yukamura wanted to do was open up what he would call the eros of your partner and turn it into mm-hmm. a game. Um, and the game was to make them as excited as possible, Right. And then of course they're restrained, so they can't do anything about it. So they're really under your control, under your spell. So it really becomes a lot of fun. It's very a, pl- a very playful energy. Um, and that's really what drew me to his style of rope. Um, other styles right. of rope may be very focused, for example, on pain or discomfort uh, or suffering. Um, and he, he wasn't really about that. Um, he really liked the erotic dimension and uh,
0: and then for you, are uh, have you been like the top and the tire, or have you experimented with both sides?
2: So my my energy is very much on the top side. Um, I have experimented in the sense that I think it's very important when you're tying other people to know what the experience is like in terms of how rope feels, how tight it is, where the positioning is. So I don't get the same kind of feeling that, a bottom who enjoys rope wood, but as part of, of one's education, I think it's always important to understand what you're doing to somebody else before you're actually doing it to them. Um, I had a, a, a really interesting moment where um, I was studying with um, a guy named Arata Hiroshi, who's one of the, um, the riggers who tied for all of the Japanese movies in, in the 70s. Um, cool. And he must've been, I guess he's probably close to 80 when, when I met him. And uh, we had a bottom there and he was tying her and teaching us and showing us things. And uh, she ran off to the bathroom and uh, he wasn't done tying. So he just grabbed me and started tying me. <laughs> just like, okay, <laughs> guess the student's gonna, you know, I have to stand in so uh you know that was a moment that was really interesting because I I get to feel what his style was like um and it was Mm. different than than anything I had experienced before so I mean it was uh it it was a strange moment he didn't even ask he just did it so you know
0: got it um and uh, yeah I I want to get back to that but so and then as a as a top then what what have you experienced? Like what what is the sensation and the joy for you, you know, versus you're saying it doesn't elicit the same thing as a bottom, but like through uh, Yukimoro's, uh approach, which is through the erotic, which is through this like exposure and this game, what what has it brought into into your exploration in life that that made you be so interested in it and, and now have a dojo where yeah. you get to share it with other
2: people? I mean, I guess for me that, that one of the ways I like to explain it is that a good rope session is like a, a very deep conversation. Um, mm. And that you can you can get to know somebody very deeply in a rope session in a way that you can't any other way. So you're sharing something intimate, something connected. They're exposing a part of themselves and you're exposing part of yourself to them, um, which is really powerful. And um, part of that game and part of that play also has to do with things like rejection, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're constantly pushing into um, their erotic psyche. And to have them let you into that um, is uh, a very intimate thing. But you're Mm -hmm. also putting yourself on the line because you're pushing in there. And if they push back and say no, um, I mean, that can feel pretty awful. Right. Um, it, mm-hmm. it is a kind of rejection. So that play of going back and forth um, is uh, is an exploration, I think, um, in into, like I said, sort of the erotic psyche, someone's libido, um, all of that kind of stuff. And when it really works yeah. um, and you really are both turned on by it and really excited by it and, and you're going to those really interesting places, um, there's nothing else like it. So for me, getting to that space is, um, that's where the magic is, right? It has nothing to do with the patterns or the ties or the procedures. It has to do with the, the communication that you have with your partner.
0: Yeah. Um, that was one of the biggest takeaways that I had from the shibari session was was like how much of a conversation it is and and how like there's so many subtle movements of uh, you know almost like an exclamation mark or like a period or something you know right like um, like it really is this uh, really intimate um, fine-tuned moment-by-moment interaction and so um, I want to dive into the history of shibari but I do want to clarify something you were saying before about you know where uh the other master that you were working with kind of just brought you into being a bottom and tied you and just talk a little bit about consent and what that looks like within within shibari and and sort of what you teach as well because i know that that is a very big component and it's a very important aspect
2: yeah consent's a really interesting topic Especially in comparison between what we do here and and what happened to Japan. Um, And and Mm. not all of it's good uh, in what happened to Japan. Um, Consent is much less important in Japan than trust. So Mm. um, we tend to be in the West very upfront about uh, what we're going to ask people to do, how we're going to do it. Um, We want enthusiasm, we want a yes, we want you know, everything to be very clear up front. And yeah. um, and I think for good reason, because um, there have been a lot of problems with that. There is a long history, particularly in terms of, of gender issues of exploitation. Mm-hmm. So I, I think having that dimension is incredibly important. Um, in Japan, the relationship that you have with rope is based on a very, simple question, which is at the end of the session, will this person want to do this with me again? Right. Okay. So everything you're doing, you're trying to think about in that dimension. So the next scene can be a little deeper. The next scene can be a little deeper. The next scene can be a little deeper, but what you're doing over time is you're building a relationship and you're creating a feeling of trust, um, Mm -hmm. which is a more complicated issue than consent the problem is Mm -hmm. when you're building a trust relationship you can misread things you can overstep Um, you can cause problems because you haven't gotten that consent ahead of time but I talked to a very very famous um, bottom uh, named uh, Yuri uh, Sunahara who was the the bottom for probably the greatest rope guy that ever lived in Rekki and we, I was talking to her about consent. She said, if I had if I had to give consent, there are places I never would have gone, which are some of the best moments of my life. Hmm. Um, because he knew what I needed more than I did. And if he'd asked, I would have said no. Um but they had a you know 20 year relationship of tying together. So he did know her well enough to sort of push those those boundaries. Um At the same time now, we hear stories of people who do take liberties without asking permission in Japan, and some of the history of adult videos and things like that were absolutely horrendous. Um, So it was something that was taken advantage of um, in a lot of cases. And because Japanese women tend not to want to make a fuss, they want to not speak publicly about things, um, a lot of really bad things happened um, that were never given voice so i don't want to valorize that as a way of thinking about things but i think you have to have both i think you need to have at least Mm -hmm. the broad notion of consent that everybody's on board with what's happening but also i think there's something beautiful about building a relationship that's grounded in trust as well so that allows you to progress to deeper and deeper levels Um, and having conversations about things and communication about things that are open and honest and, and complete really important
0: yeah I love that, and I think like you know this distinction of consent and trust it is really important. And and one of the things that 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 jumps out to me, I was having a conversation with a um a woman who is a, a sub, and she's like a huge advocate for subs and speaking about like what it is to be a sub. Um, and you know she has like the the uh traffic light system, yeah. and so I think what comes up for trust with me is like you consent to what's happening we get an enthusiastic yes and then there is you know levels of like yellow I I need some care I need somebody to check in you know I need you to check in with me um it's not like an outright no and then red is like an outright no so that there is some kind of like if something goes really far there is a way to have trust and communication of like okay I need to stop I need a moment you know whatever um and so just to clarify for, for the, the work that you do in the dojo, there is very clear consent of all parties of Absolutely. this is something that I want to do. Yeah, there yeah. has to
2: be. Cool. I mean, that has to happen up yeah. front. Um, and I think that um, you know, consent is one of those issues that is far more complicated, I think, in the BDSM mm-hmm. world than it is maybe in the vanilla world. Because sure. when you're dealing with things like like pain or restraint or humiliation, oftentimes part of the psychology is that we want what we don't want. Right. Yeah, right. So it's complicated right. because sometimes a no is a yes, which is why we have safe words. Right. Right. Um, so we have kind of things in place to, to help with that. Um, but nothing takes the place of honest communication. And I think right. what I see happening with consent violations more than anything else is oftentimes tops or dominants not being honest about what it is they want. Mm -hmm. Um, They wanna have sex with their partner, their partner doesn't wanna have sex with them. So they're going to figure out a way to make it happen, right? By skirting the rules, by getting them turned on, by renegotiating, instead of saying, I really wanna have sex with you. And the person says, I don't wanna have sex with you. The appropriate response is then we shouldn't do a scene together because we don't have our interests aligned. Rather than trying to manipulate the scene into getting what you want, find somebody who wants yeah. what you want, and then make that happen. Totally. Um, and yeah. you know that's that's the best, right? Is when you can find somebody who, who wants the things that you want, and um, yeah. you know the, the more you look, you find they're out there, right? Um, yeah. but things There's things When, so many when they're not right, um, that's I think a recipe for for causing serious problems.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you for, for just exploring that for a bit. So I'd love to talk now about the history of Shabari and how, how it started, um, and like what, what the roots are, um, because I think this history is so fascinating and I think it, it, it also lends itself to the conversation of kind of how BDSM started here and where, where kink comes from and, yeah. and, and certain like play, play things that we use as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I think that there's a, a lot of ways to think about this. Um, uh, in Japan, um, the roots of of getting tied up, um, they go way back, um, and they come from a couple of different places. Um, one of them is an uh, old martial art called hojujutsu, was the battlefield art of, of binding prisoners, which later became a policing technique. Um, and it, we can say that that's a way in which rope and bondage entered the Japanese consciousness, but it's not, there's not a direct line. It's not like people started tying up prisoners and then started tying in the bedroom, right? The same way we look at, sure. at um, people getting flogged, right? Getting flogged on pirate ships is not the same kind of flogging that ended up in the BDSM dungeons, right? God, you know, God forbid because sure. people yeah. died, you know, it was, it was truly torture. Um, same thing. The purposes were so different that, that, that they're not the same, but um, some of the techniques got passed on. And certainly the, the idea of it being part of Japanese um, sort of cultural consciousness was important. Same thing with Kabuki theater. Lots of people getting tied up, just like we have lots of police procedurals where people get handcuffed and put in prison. Um, they had people getting okay. tied up and, and you know uh, being subjected to rope torture and things like that. So again, it was visible. Um, And uh, it has that long history. And I think there's something about every culture that eroticizes um, things that have to do with disciplinary technologies like policing, right? And that's the reason we have whips and handcuffs and those things in the dungeon. In Japan, the aspects of material culture were bamboo, cloth, and rope. So um, Mm. if you've ever watched the process of a woman um, putting on a kimono, In Japan, Um, it is (laughs) very restrictive, right? They are Mm -hmm. not—they are not meant to be moved around and easily. Um, So there's there's those kind of elements, Um, and also um, tying is just something that um, you see a lot more of in Japan. Everywhere you go, you'll Mm -hmm. see rope. Um, You see, um, you know, construction sites um, will be bamboo and rope. They won't be, they won't be steel um, scaffolding. Bridges and fencing will be wooden rope. Um, even if you go into um, mm-hmm. some shops where there's a magazine, they don't want you to read, it'll be tied shut, right?
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. So you
2: learn to tie a lot more in Japan. So it's it's a kind of natural progression, I think as well, um, to, to think about making it part of erotic activity. It's also really interesting, if you go back to the, the Japanese version of the Kama Sutra, um, Uh In the first issues that I guess came from, probably from India or China, I'm not sure how it kind of migrated. um, They added a, um, it's the first instance, I think, where they added some kind of bondage. Um, And it was using the sash of the kimono to tie a woman's legs apart. So it's kind of embedded in the sexuality from the very beginning. Um,
0: Got
2: it. So it's it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of there from, from early on.
0: And so then this this evolution how did it take place into into the erotic and into more of this expression? I think I remember there was a transition into the theater aspect yeah. of it, but that it wasn't actually binding and it wasn't actually like a, a practical way to 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 bind somebody, right? Or even like lift them if you wanted to. Yeah,
2: so the, the kind of grandfather of all this is a man named Ito Seu. And Ito was a painter, he was an author, he was an artist. Um, and his day job, it was he was a theater critic. And the story is that when he was young, he went to the theater and saw a kabuki play where a nurse was tied up. Um, and it stuck with him forever. And he became absolutely fascinated with the idea of, of binding women. And then later in life, um, he uh, began doing that with his wife and and, uh, with uh, another woman and um, taking pictures of it. So a couple of things have to kind of come together. Um, One is the interest. Uh, But the other is that for the first time, you're getting photography as a more mainstream activity. So a lot of this Mm -hmm. had been art before that. And um, also... um, publication of magazines and journals starts to happen. Hmm. So um, he's able to start showing um, his interests. And and initially, uh, he was also a researcher, he wrote about um, early rope torture in a number of books. Um, and almost immediately, they were banned, right, for being obscene. Oh,
0: wow. So sure. um, he was
2: branded a pervert from very early on and had a very hard life for a long time. Um, but he was absolutely dedicated, um, to, to, pursuing this and, uh, yeah, did an enormous amount of art and writing and, uh, was highly influential. And I, I just should say as a side aside, go back to the circle, back to the earlier conversation we were having about, um, cultural shame and, and inaccessibility there in the 1950s, some really fascinating roundtable discussions of both, um, tops and bottoms. Talking about um, this, this is actually called in Japan a segment of abnormal sexuality. Um, so oh. they, they felt very isolated and they were doing this round table. And women were saying things like, you know, why do I want my husband to come home and punish me? Like, why do I want that? That's not normal. That's not mm-hmm. right. You know, why, where did these desires come from? And uh, some of these men saying, like, you know, I, I don't, I love my wife, I don't want to hurt her but I do, <laughs> I do want to hurt her, right? I, I want to punish her or suspend yeah. her, or tie her up, make her struggle and these kind of things. So they were really wrestling with this feeling of being abnormal in Japanese society and yet feeling like right. they needed to do this. So they became part of this underground world where they were writing articles, where they were doing some photos, they were doing things like that at great personal cost um, to really explore mm-hmm. aspects of their own sexuality. So, um, there, there's in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, there's really that underground moment where um, something's struggling to get out in, in their culture, um, and it sort of explodes in the 70s. It becomes very much more popular and, and more accessible. But you know, for 20 years, there's there's a group of people who sacrificed a lot um, in order to make that happen.
0: Mm. Wow, yeah, it's so it, it's so interesting because I I feel like. The more that you talk about it the more that it gets exposed the more other people are like oh yeah this is this is something i'm interested in too or like this isn't abnormal right like there there, there are ways that we process um, psychological information and fetishes and whatever that like get to be explored in the body and that it gets to be okay and 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 we don't necessarily have to label it or, or understand it even That's like right. it can it can have be cathartic and and pleasurable in that in like period Yeah <laughs> Um. Yeah. And so I'm curious about this evolution of like once these publications and, and the, the grandfather of all this that you're talking about, like when was that occurring and what what was that shift into um from that point into a, more of an exploration of outside of just the photography and these journalists? Yeah. So
2: so Ito really starts doing this in, in the 20s and 30s. Um, and it's not probably until, until um, after the war, um, late 40s, or early 50s, that that there's more visibility. Um, and it starts to kind of open up into a number of, of magazines and, and publications. And people are, are really um, more openly exploring it. Um, and then, of course, um, when we get to the 70s, um, one of the major transformations is um, uh, One of the problems the movie industry has in Japan is television. Um, And as television starts to become more popular, people stop going to the movies. So uh, Mm -hmm. one of the oldest movie studios in Japan called Nikatsu ends up making a series of um, Pink uh, pink Ega, which are um, uh, romantic um, uh, pornography, Roman porno they called it, uh, which are a series of about 100 rope films. which became okay. wildly successful because you can't see those on tv right you have to go to the theater to, to see them
0: Got it. and mm-hmm.
2: um it becomes um you know a very uh interesting part of the culture that that um uh people get exposed to and and i think it does normalize it to some degree It still you know still stays very underground but it's sort of titillating and, and, and kind of interesting so things kind of open up um, in the 70s in Japan, it, it, pretty close to the way I think they have in, in America now, um, that it's accepted as something you do in private. Like, people don't run around, um, you know, bragging about it or exposing themselves or, you know, whatever. Um, sure. But yeah, it's if, if that's what you do in the privacy of your own home, nobody's going to say anything.
0: Got it. And And I'm curious, like, are these the rope tying that you're talking about and even the shibari from today, is it similar to how prisoners were tied up and the original like sort of uses for rope or has it has it evolved to to different techniques into different ties?
2: So what's really fascinating um is that there, there's some evidence that this is how Ito um, started by going back to the old manuals for hojujutsu. Um, but as it evolved out of that, um, if you look at the picture- And hojutsu, Oh, was the martial was, art. Yeah, Just... the Japanese martial art okay. of tying up the prisoners. So he, he definitely took some techniques from that. And there, there's a couple of early articles he wrote actually documenting some of the interesting ties that, that he learned from that. Um, but that kind of goes by the wayside. And people just start experimenting with rope and playing and seeing what looks good and what feels good and, and what patterns um, they like to look at. Um, and you have one group that becomes kind of minimalist. What What's the most erotic thing I can do with the fewest ropes possible, right? And then you get another group that gets more kind of Baroque about it where the ropes really become the focus. So how many ropes can I use to do something beautiful um, and take pictures of, right? So you get all these different approaches um, to thinking about doing rope. Um, and it, it's kind of a, a, a time when all of this is exploding. Um, and then after that period, probably in the 80s, maybe even early 90s, people go, you know, they used to do this a long time ago, right? Maybe we should go back and start seeing how they used to do this in Hojujutsu times. And maybe we can learn something from that. And then they start incorporating the older ties much later, right? So it was almost a retro kind of thing. Um, so uh, they were looking for new ideas, and that's one of the places uh, they went. So um, the the historical connection to the old martial arts um, is complicated, right? It's not not particularly linear. Um, sure. Yeah. So that, I mean, we're, as
0: yeah. most things are. Right. <laughs> um amazing and so then as far as what you teach at your dojo and what la rope does like what how has been the experience of teaching and bringing this into you know into koreatown and fostering a community of your own um that shares this technique and shares this kind of experience and conversation
2: um so for me um the greatest joy that I get out of it is teaching new couples and seeing them find a new way to express themselves, enjoy each other, engage in something erotic, do something fun. Um, One of my favorite uh, stories is I had a couple who um, someone had given them one of my rope classes, private lesson um, as a wedding gift.
0: Oh, Oh, what an awesome right! Yeah, (laughs) so they
2: come and they take the class, uh, and uh, they sign up for another class six months later, and the couple comes back and she's six months pregnant, and I'm like, I'm gonna take, uh, I'm gonna take credit for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome! How funny! Yeah, that's amazing. Uh,
2: Um, So yeah, to (laughs) me, and and this, you know, I owe this all to Kamara. It it is all about communication and intimacy, right, Mm -hmm. and Like I tell people, I can teach you patterns. I could teach a monkey patterns in a weekend, right? They're not that important. Um, But understanding what you're doing with the rope, what you're communicating, what they're communicating back to you, and how to build that conversation. Um, If you can master that, right, then then you've got something. Um, And I think not enough people teach that. Um, when they're talking about rope, because I think it's very seductive just to say, what's the next pattern? What's the next pattern? How do I make this more beautiful? How do I take the next Instagram picture? Right.
0: Um, (laughs) and it's never
2: been about that for me. Um, uh, and, uh, I, I try to steer my students away from that with varying degrees of success.
0: Sure. Um, and so what is like the, your future with the dojo? Like what's, what's the what's the plan or or the vision for huh. it how to what you know like what are you looking to create
2: right now I'll keep the lights on um you know yeah, sadly God, of
0: course, <laughs> um and,
2: and i think that um you know the, the way that i like to think about it is i, I like to think about rope being for everybody um mm. and kind of for everybody as well um so you know, my greatest joy is really teaching new students. I love doing introductory classes. I love seeing the light bulbs go off and I love seeing people find um, that that space. Uh, so that's always gonna be a big part of what I do. I, always, I do two, usually do two beginner group classes a month to get people interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whether people wanna go further than that or not, um, you know, it's always gonna be, you know, a kind of funnel where it narrows down to people who are gonna have the deeper and deeper interest. So it's always nice to have a handful of students um, who want to um, you know, learn at a deeper and deeper level. And my goal is to get to students, uh, my students to the place where um, I can teach them the way that I learned in Japan, uh, which was, mm. I never took a lesson from Yukimura. Um, our classes would begin with tea. We'd sit down and we'd talk for an hour Um, which were some of the most important parts of the lessons ever and Mm. um, then the model would come in and then he would hand me a rope and he would say please tie one rope Yukimura style and I'd tie and I would get a response that varied anything from enthusiasm and uh, him talking to sometimes him turning away and working on his computer. She <laughs> wasn't that impressed with what I was doing. Or if you were me, <laughs> occasionally he'd just stop me, be waving his hands and go, no, 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 uh, And then, you know, show me what I was doing wrong. And then every once in a while, he'd come in and he'd tie something and I'd watch mm. and they'd have me replicate that. Um, and then we kind of experiment and play. And then afterwards, he would ask the model to talk about what had happened during the, the scene. And I was very fortunate to have very, very skilled, talented, experienced models who were very honest about things. And they would tell you when you messed up, boy would they tell you. Uh, and they would tell you the things you did that were great. And uh, he would always say to them, you know, uh, to the model, because they were getting paid. Um, he would say, uh, you must be very honest with me and I'll know if you're not. And if you're not, I won't invite you back
0: right? Got it. So
2: they were brutally (laughs) honest, which was, you know, I, I think I learned more from the models than I did from anybody else. Um, because
0: so was there emphasis at all on like specific ties or it was really just like figuring things out as you went and getting feedback when, when he was interested in, in what you were doing or, you know, depending on the day.
2: So, um, one of the things that, and this is true of, of kind of consent issues too in Japan is that the student, the bottom, whoever's in the kind of lower position um, is responsible for doing their homework. So if you show up to a class with Yukimura, you better know something about Yukimura and you better know something about his style of tying and what he does and some of the basics. So then you can do the basics already and then he can sort of help you with the finesse. Uh, I, I want some, was talking to a a famous um, rope guy in Japan, and uh, a woman had been injured in a suspension. And Mm -hmm. um, she was complaining to him. And he said to her, what did you know about him before he tied you? And she said, nothing. And he listed off four or five things about this person that everybody in the community knew and said the fact that you didn't know any of those things, you put yourself in danger, right? because this is a person who's always going to do these things. Everybody knows that. And that's one of the reasons you got hurt. You weren't ready for that, right? You shouldn't have been tying with him. And it was your job to know that, not his job to stop you. And we don't think that way here. Um, But um, that's definitely part of the culture there is you are responsible for your own well-being first and foremost. And if you throw yourself in a situation where you don't know what you're doing, um, you're kind of asking for trouble. So um being naive and just um willing to to do anything can can cause all kinds of problems. There's one guy who uh who always pees in girls' mouths, right? Mm-hmm. Um again, everyone knows this. So if you walk into that scene and you don't know that, it can be quite disturbing and quite shocking. Sure, um, sure, sure, yeah. But again, sort of, if, if you say to somebody, can you believe what he did? They don't look at you and go, yeah, we know what he does. He does that every single time. <laughs> <Right>? This, <laughs>
0: is, his this is his thing, right? Totally. You know,
2: it's kind of what he's famous yeah. for. So, you know.
0: So then when you're talking about cultivating this environment with, within your classes, like as people continue, it, it is like this give and take of, uh, you know, conversation and, and, and kind of Experimenting and giving feedback and stuff like that, as opposed to like a rudimentary, like here's a tie, here you, you know, and, and try this, and then here's another tie, and whatever. It is like more of a a a, a co experience, I would say. As, it like, is.
2: So, so think. with my advanced students, what I'll do is I'll I'll just have them start tying, and mm. then I'll watch, and at the appropriate time, I'll sort of say, okay, so what you just did here. Here are three other things you could have done, right? Or I'll oh, cool. talk to the bottom and say, so how were you feeling when that happened? Or sometimes I'll say to the top, how do you think your partner was feeling? And oftentimes I'll go, oh, I have no idea, right? And it's like, ah, okay, you, you need to know at that moment, it was a very important moment and you weren't there for it, right? So mm-hmm. it's much more about kind of dissecting what what a scene looks like than it is again about teaching particular kinds of, of ties. Um, and there's yeah, p- plenty of yeah. places they can go learn that stuff if they want to.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Um, well, this has been amazing. Where again, can people find you if they're interested in signing up for a private lesson, which is what you're offering yeah. during COVID times, right? And then hopefully we'll get back to, to group classes. But yeah, where can they, where can they find you?
2: Um, LARopeDojo.com is the main dojo site um amazing and um can also see some of my writings and things at Kimbaku today which is my sort of online magazine site
0: okay cool and we'll put those in the show notes as well um this has been awesome doug thank you so much for sharing and for for coming on i yeah i think shivari is so fun and fascinating and we my partner and i had such a wonderful experience so this was such a joy my god that was so cool thank you so much Doug for coming on I just like man just the history of Shabari and the teaching that that he does and and he teaches is just like amazing (laughs) so it's just so cool
1: it's yeah it's one of those things that's like separate from even like the sexual practice around it it's just a very cool art form too so like Mm -hmm. I think it's very uh accessible from a for a lot of from a lot of perspectives so yeah I think it's very neat
0: yeah, my favorite thing that he really references is—is is it's like a conversation. So it's—it's it's just a way to get more intimate with a partner, um, and but also there's like beauty within it, and it's cool and like the feeling of rope, you know. Um, I really like it so yeah thank you so much for coming on uh please check out his website and sign up for classes if you are interested maybe i'll see you there in in better times <laughs> um yeah, and as always, please follow us on social media at Finding My Yum Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we post behind the scenes and upcoming episodes, and we just want you to be a part of our community. We're also streaming on YouTube, so if you'd rather watch these episodes than just listen, please check us out Finding My Yum Podcast on YouTube. Uh, we'd love more subscribers, so just like click that little subscribe button um, and join our community there as well.
1: Yeah, and if you have any longer form thoughts that you want to send to us um, or, or guest suggestions, you can always do that over email as well, Finding findingmyyum at gmail.com. Um, again, we're located pretty much anywhere you consume podcasts, so make sure to rate, review, and subscribe and share with some friends because um, we are growing and we'd love to grow even further. So,
0: Yeah, we have so many more exciting episodes coming up. We'd love to hear from you. We love your recommendations. We always take them, um, and and we've got so much more. So stay yummy. We'll see you next week. Yeah